0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Friday, August the 25th, uh, 2023, and uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Later on in our program, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the conclusion of the Brazil-Russia-India-China-South Africa 15th Summit that was held in the Republic of South Africa, where additional uh, six states uh, were admitted into the economic bloc. The leader of the Wagner Group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, had recently been in Africa prior to his death in a private jet crash uh, just three days ago. Nigeria has authorized the military cooperation with Burkina Faso and Mali in the face of threatened imperialist-backed intervention. And the war in Ukraine uh, continues with clashes between the NATO-backed forces and the Russian Federation. In the second hour, we look in detail at the outcomes of the BRICS summit with a report uh, from President Cyril Ramaphosa of the Republic of South Africa and other analyses. Finally, we continue our Black August uh, commemoration with a historical review of the Emancipation Proclamation and the United States Civil War in the 19th century. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, in the West African state of Mali. Let's listen in. <laughs>
2: samboch tom dalo, la sa de go de de kele akile kele I'm going to go to the city and 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 I'm not yukili na ni da Yala ni na da Dongili da la da da da
3: Nika makana wa, Mekani makana wa, kani na koroneko ni na ikanawa kame la godumarosa amma kono dibulunida kakana kanun di maminyo mae phone ikana kanito
4: Es
5: No puedo parar con manga me una toni jaga Manam cafe hota bolengono hui nan ke fe ke fe tubin sanila luje nunu Manan ka konu e dimana Ina mele manga me sabe una ai uai ah ina voga sa toni jega jega zozoda le wo ka fe ka pia kan uran ensu na gona gugu
4: che
5: Na ba na ba na ba Candery Lily, Kangari Lily, Mullaminigus, Candery Lily, Candery kangari a kangari, kangari a kangari, kangari kangari, kangari Candery, kangari, kangari
4: you. Mm-hmm.
6: ni tienen foto
1: back and uh, that was a collection of uh, tracks uh, from the West African state of Mali. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast. Today is Friday, August 25th, uh, 2023. Uh, we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. At this time, uh, we'd like to move into our Pan-African Newswire reports. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the recently concluded Brazil-Russia-India-China-South Africa Plus Summit that took place in Johannesburg in the Republic of South Africa. Six new countries have uh, been added. Uh, to uh, the BRICS uh, economic block. Iran and Saudi Arabia were among six countries invited just uh, on yesterday to join the uh, BRICS block of developing economies in a move that showed signs of strengthening a China-Russia coalition as tensions with the West spiral even higher. The United Arab Emirates, uh, Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia were also set to enter BRICS from January the 1st, 2024, joining current members Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa to make a 11-nation block. The announcement came after two days of talks at a summit in Johannesburg involving Brazilian President Luiz Ignacio Lula da Silva, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping, and South African President Cyril Ramaphosa. Russian President Vladimir Putin participated in the discussions virtually, uh, and, of course, uh, the uh, situation uh, inside of South Africa, of course, uh, over the last uh, several days has been one of optimism, focus, and forward-looking. President Putin of Russia welcomed the six countries uh, by a video link. While there has been uh, momentum for a BRICS expansion uh, for many months, it pushed largely by China and Russia. The five leaders were locked in closed-door discussions for two days Tuesday and Wednesday before emerging with an agreement on expanding a list of countries on the last day of the summit. BRICS is a consensus organization that needs all members to agree on the decisions that are made. The bloc was formed in, by Brazil, Russia, India, and China in 2009 and added South Africa the next year. 2010, making Thursday's announcement in the heart of Johannesburg's high-rise Santon Financial District its most significant decision in more than a decade. And you can read more uh, on this issue uh, by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. Debney Pogosin, the founder of the Wagner Private Military Company, whose plane crashed uh, just uh, two days ago, had returned uh, from Africa just the day before. That's according to President Vladimir Putin. He said that, quote, as far as I know, he returned from Africa only yesterday. He met with some officials here, unquote, the head of state pointed out at a meeting with acting head of the Donetsk People's Republic, Denis Pashulin. He worked not only in our country, and he worked successfully, but also abroad, especially in Africa. There he dealt with oil, gas, precious metals, and stone, Putin added. An Embraer, a business jet flying from Moscow to St. Petersburg, crashed on Wednesday night in Russia's Tver region. According to preliminary data, there were 10 people on board, all of whom uh, died. Uh, Russia's Federal Air, Air Transport Agency, Reza said that businessman Yevgeny Pogosin was listed as one of the passengers. A criminal case has been opened over the crash on the grounds of violation of safety regulations for the movement and operation of air transport. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the West African state of Niger, General Abdurrahmani Shahani, the head of Niger's National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, signed an order authorizing defense and security forces of Burkina Faso and Mali to enter the territory of Niger in case of an attack against it. The Ajan Najien de Presse, ANP, reported. On August 24th, the head of the caretaker government, Ali Lamin Zin, met with ministerial delegations from Mali and Burkina Faso, the news agency reported. The delegations confirmed their desire to fight terrorism and extremism together with Niger, the ANP said. Representatives of the three countries stressed, quote, the need of strengthening cooperation mechanisms, intelligence data sharing and joint operations for purpose of increasing efficiencies to counter the activity of terrorist groups, unquote, the news agency said. Niger, Burkina Faso, and Mali agreed, quote, to provide each other with capabilities for mutual defense and help in the sphere of defense and security in case of an aggression or terrorist attacks, unquote, the ANP reported. Niger also has given the French ambassador just two days to leave the country. According to the media, the ambassador did not show up at the uh, government-controlled foreign ministry when summoned. Revolutionary leaders in Niger have demanded that the French ambassador leave the country within 48 hours. The Al-Haddad television channel said this earlier today. According to the television channel, the ambassador did not show up at the foreign ministry when summoned and refused to meet with the new governmental representatives. In late July... A group of military leaders in Niger announced the removal of President Mohamed Bazoum. They then established the National Council for the Safeguard of the Homeland, headed by General Abdulrahman Chiani, to run the country. The Economic Community of West African States suspended Niger's membership in the organization and imposed tough sanctions on the country. Apart from that, ECOWAS leaders demanded the rebels set Bazoum free and warned about a military resolution of the situation if he is not released. On August the 10th, Shiani signed a decree on forming a new interim government, 20 ministers, both military as well as civilian. And of course, uh, finally, uh, in regard uh, to developments uh, related uh, to uh, the special military operation of uh, the Russian Federation in Ukraine, according to reports from the TASS news agency, Russian forces delivered a multiple launch strike uh, by high precision weapons, destroying a Ukrainian military command center over the past day in the special military operation in Ukraine, Defense Ministry spokesman Lieutenant General Igor Konashimkov reported on Thursday. Last night, the Russian armed forces delivered a multiple launch strike by seaborne and ground-based long-range precision weapons against a Ukrainian military command center. The spokesman said, the goal of the strike was achieved, the target was destroyed, the general stressed. Now, Russian forces also claim that they repulsed five Ukrainian army attacks in the Kupyansk area, destroying about 50 enemy troops over the past day. Konashenkov reported, quote, In the Kupiansk direction, assault teams of the Western Battle Group continued successful offensive operations in their assigned areas of responsibility. Five enemy attacks were repulsed by courageous actions of the battle group's units. Army aviation strikes and artillery fire near the settlements of Novo, Novo and Lugansk People's Republic and the Senkovka of the Kharkov region, the spokesman said. Russian forces, quote, destroyed up to 50 Ukrainian personnel, two infantry fighting vehicles three pickup trucks, and three U.S.-made M777 artillery systems, unquote, in the Coupion's direction over the past 24 hours, the General reported. With that, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people, throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing, and burning issues of the day, just go to our website, and that's at uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access uh, to uh, today's uh, program, the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash panafricanjournal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Padden African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program. I want
7: you to love me. Love your baby, slow. I want you to love me. Love your baby. I want you to love I want you to love me. Love me with your heart. We will. I want you to love me. Love me with your heart.
8: at all.
1: known as uh, Muddy Waters. That track was entitled Mad Love. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Friday, August 25th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. The BRICS Summit uh, occurred uh, just over the last three days in Johannesburg in the Republic of South Africa. The meeting... Uh, was the 15th uh, summit uh, since uh, 2009. The host, uh, the Republic of South Africa President, Sarah Ramaphosa, and the African National Congress government uh, delivered a briefing on yesterday. Let's listen uh, to uh, President Ramaphosa and the other heads of state um, on uh, their outcomes for the BRICS summit.
7: Your excellencies, heads of states and government from the BRICS member states, the honourable ministers present from BRICS member states, ladies and gentlemen of the media, welcome to this session, the session that will present the Johannesburg Declaration of the 15th BRICS Summit. President Ramaphosa will, as chair of the summit and of BRICS, will kick off with the opening statement. And thereafter, the President will invite his counterparts and colleagues from the BRICS member states to also present their statement. I'd like to now invite President Ramaphosa to kick us off with the media statement. Mr. President.
9: Thank you, Program Director, Your Excellencies, and various guests who are here with us, members of the media, and leaders of various organizations. It is a pleasure to present to you two matters. The first is to inform and advise you that the BRICS leaders in the 15th BRICS Summit have over the past two days had occasion to have discussions both in a retreat form as well as in a proper official summit. And in the course of those discussions I have reached a conclusion to adopt the Johannesburg II Declaration as a declaration that encompasses and covers the various issues that the leaders had to decide on. These matters have been in discussions for over a year in various iterations and meetings, being prepared by our shepherds and ministers in various meetings, and in the end, a declaration has now been adopted as Declaration 2, Johannesburg Declaration 2, and is adopted. Now we come to the media statement, which I will read out, and thereafter each one of the BRICS leaders will make a statement. We have successfully concluded the 15th BRICS Summit yesterday. It is the first BRICS Summit to be hosted in person since COVID-19 pandemic and the subsequent global travel restrictions. Leading up to the summit, there was a wide-ranging BRICS business forum attended by some 1,500 business people from BRICS countries as well as from other countries from around the globe. This business forum was aimed at attracting investment, promoting collaboration and showcasing opportunities within South Africa, the African continent and indeed BRICS countries as well. We had an opportunity to receive a report from the President of the New Development Bank, Dilma Rousseff, on the vision and the role of the bank and the role that it intends to play to support infrastructure and sustainable development in Africa and in the global south. We celebrated the 10th anniversary of the establishment of the BRICS Business Council and welcome their report and the subsequent recommendations that they made to the leaders. We also welcomed the work of the BRICS Women's Business Alliance in their first in-person engagement with the BRICS leaders. We particularly welcomed the participation of youth representatives in the summit, we endorsed our expectations for the BRICS Economic Partnership to generate tangible benefits for our communities and deliver viable solutions for common challenges faced by the Global South. We shared our vision of BRICS as a champion of the needs and concerns of the peoples of the Global South. These include the need for beneficial economic growth, sustainable development, and the reform of multilateral systems. We reiterate our commitment to inclusive multilateralism and upholding international law, including the purposes and principles enshrined in the United Nations Charter. We are concerned about ongoing conflicts in many parts of the world. We stress our commitment to the peaceful resolution of differences and disputes through dialogue and inclusive consultation. The summit noted that an unbalanced recovery from the hardships of COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating inequality across the world. We encourage multilateral financial institutions and international organizations to play a constructive role in building global consensus on economic policies. We have noted that there is global momentum for the use of local currencies, alternative financial arrangements, and alternative payment systems. As BRICS, we are ready to explore opportunities for improving the stability, reliability and fairness of the global financial architecture. In this regard, BRICS leaders have tasked their finance ministers and central bank governors as appropriate to consider the issue of local currencies, payment instruments, and platforms, and to report back to the BRICS leaders by the next summit. This summit reaffirmed the importance of BRICS people-to-people exchanges in enhancing mutual understanding, friendship, and cooperation. The summit appreciates the progress made over the last year in the fields of media, culture, education, sports, arts, youth, civil society, and academic exchanges. We adopted the Johannesburg II Declaration, which reflects key BRICS messages on matters of global, economic, financial, and political importance. It demonstrates the shared values and common interests that underlie our mutual beneficial cooperation as the five BRICS countries. BRICS itself is a diverse group of nations. It is an equal partnership of countries that have differing views but have a shared vision a better world. As five BRICS countries, we have reached agreement on the guiding principles, standards, criteria and procedures of the BRICS expansion process, which has been in discussion for quite a while. We have consensus on the first phase of this expansion process, and other phases will follow. We have decided to invite the Argentine Republic, the Arab Republic of Egypt, the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, the Islamic Republic of Iran, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates to become full members of BRICS, the membership will take effect from the 1st of January 2024. We value the interest of other countries in building a partnership with BRICS. We have tasked our foreign ministers to further develop the BRICS partner country model and a list of prospective partner countries and reports by the next summit. Today we will be hosting leaders from Africa and the Global South in the BRICS Africa Outreach and the BRICS Plus Dialogue. This is so that we can have an inclusive dialogue on key issues affecting developing economies and identify actions that we can take together towards a more equitable, inclusive, and representative world. May I conclude by thanking the leaders of Brazil, Russia, India, and China, together with their delegations for participating in this most successful 15th BRICS summit held in Johannesburg, South Africa. Through this summit, BRICS has embarked on a new chapter in its efforts to build a world that is fair, a world that is just, a world that is also inclusive and prosperous. I thank you. I'm now going to ask President Lula da Silva, President of Brazil to be the first to speak, and thereafter I'll ask the others to follow. Thank you very much.
10: Well, first of all, I would like to thank, especially President Ramaphosa, e Ramaphosa and his team, for the very warm uh, hosting and of the BRICS Cuba meeting and for the first face-to-face Também summit meeting at BRICS. I also would like to congratulate to the e team of the Foreign Affairs Ministers for all of the for all extraordinary work that they did to conduct da da and the production of this declaration that we just signed here. I participated in the BRICS meeting was in 2010, and I am deeply, very well impressed with the maturity of the BRICS and with the results that we managed to reach. In 2011, uh, in in, the the Gulf-Africa joint group gave much more representation to the groups and including one of the regions that go most in the world. Many said that we were too much different so that we can forge a common view. The experience nevertheless demonstrates the contrast. Diversidade Our diversity a diversidade de the luta for new international de diversidade de diversidade of diversidade de diversidade de diversidade de diversidade de
11: diversidade
10: the diversidade de 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 diversidade países our group. Amongst the many results of the summit meeting of today, I could stress the enhancement of of the BRICS, including new members. As President Ramaphosa just said, it's with great pleasure that Brazil gives the welcome to the BRICS, to Saudi Arabia, to Argentina, to the new members, to Egypt, to the United Arab Emirates, to Ethiopia, and to Agora, Now, BRICS the GDP of the BRICS is going up to 37% percent of the GDP,
12: which
10: is a purchasing power, and 46% in terms, terms of the world population we will continue open to new c- e members, e and for that we also the criteria procedures, procedures for future Aprovamos members. We also approve the de creation of a working group a so that we can study the adoption of a unit currency as reference for the BRICS. This measure could increase our options for means of payment and reduce our vulnerabilities. I would like to stress that that was made to the reform of the Gold global governance and special especially in relationship to the U.N. Security Council. And last and not but not the least, I would dedicate a special message to my dear uh, Alberto Fernandez, Fernand, President of Argentina, great friend of Brazil and of the developing world. We will continue to move forward side by side with our brothers Argentinians in another international forum. We will continue to advocate themes with direct impact of the quality of life of our peoples as fighting hunger,
4: poverty, and
10: inequality, and the promotion of sustainable development. We will promote the overcome of all ways of inequality that exists in the world and that the BRICS will continue to be a uh, driving force of a new international order that will be, have more failures and an indispensable prayer to promote peace, to promote multilateralism and in the defense of the international order and rule. Thank you very much.
9: Lula da Silva for your statement. It now gives me a privilege to ask President Vladimir Putin, President of the uh, Russian Federation to speak.
0: Your Excellency, Mr. Yeah, President, yeah. dear friends, dear colleagues, yeah. ex- Just like other participants (laughs) of today's event,
13: I would like to thank (laughs) our South (laughs) African friends for the
0: efforts they have made during our joint work. I должен отметить, что,
13: как выяснилось, эта работа была непростой, и президент
0: Ромахоза проявил удивительное work, дипломатическое искусство при сравнении тех позиций, что касается расширения Брис. что родительский
13: коллега президента Волода Васильева в некоторые моменты отметил наиболее важные для всех нас, среди которых я вылил бы, Выделил бы, like like, конечно, вопросы посчетной валюты единой. Это сложный вопрос, но так или иначе будем двигаться в
4: решении всего этих проблем.
13: И
0: второе, что
13: Организация расчетов между нашими странами в сфере экономической деятельности.
0: Хотел бы поздравить новых наших членов,
13: которые в полноформатном масштабе будут работать
4: в следующем году. И хочу заверить всех коллег, что мы будем
13: продолжать то, что дело, которое мы сегодня с вами начали по, по расширению влияния БРИКС. Мире.
0: Имею в виду
13: налаживание практической работы с новыми членами
4: на организации и теми, кто будет работать в сфере БРИКС в
13: качестве аутрич с нашими партнерами, которые так или иначе принимаются, уделяют внимание сотрудникам. И хотели бы с нами вместе работать. Мы относимся к этому с с вниманием и большим уважением и обязательно наладим эту работу. Конечно, в контакте со всеми партнерами
4: будем советоваться, как эту работу
13: организовать и в ходе на этих совместных дискуссиях на уровне министров иностранных дел, других
0: ведомств, выстроен
13: соответствующий регламент с тем, чтобы руль значение прежде в мире продолжала
0: расти. Большое
9: for your statement. We now call upon Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister of India. I asked him this morning whether the lunar module is still firmly on the ground on the moon, and he said yes. So yesterday we congratulated India for landing lunar model on the moon so maybe he'll be outlining the scientific aspects of uh, how the lunar model is going to proceed forward uh, Prime Minister
14: Excellencies
15: Excellencies Friends from the media, Namaskar. First of all, I would like to
14: commend
15: my friend, uh, President Ramaphosa, for the successful organization of this summit. I congratulate him for this. I am very pleased
14: that this
15: uh, three-day meeting has had many positive outcomes. On the 15th anniversary of BRICS, BRICS, we have taken the important decision to expand it. As I had said yesterday,
14: India has always fully
15: supported the expansion of BRICS membership. India has always believed
14: that the
15: addition of Bricks new members
14: will further
15: strengthen BRICS as an organization
14: and it will give our
15: shared effort
14: a new impetus. This will also strengthen uh, world the order belief
15: of uh, many countries in the world in a multipolar world order. I am
14: pleased that our मुझे teams मुझे
15: have together agreed on guiding the guiding principles, principles
14: standards, standards, criteria,
15: criteria
14: procedure and procedures uh,
15: for the expansion.
14: पर, and
15: on the basis of these,
14: Argentina we
15: have agreed Egypt, to welcome in BRICS Argentina, Saudi Egypt, Iraq, Ethiopia, 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 Iran,
14: UAE, and Saudi
15: Arabia and the
14: Bricks UAE. First of all, I would
15: like to convey my heartfelt congratulations. बहुत, बहुत, to, to the, the, leaders of leaders of the leaders and
14: people of I'm these countries I am confident that together with these
16: countries
15: we will
14: be able
16: to infuse new, new momentum and new energy into our Bharat cooperation.
14: India has had very
16: deep and and relations with all of these countries with
14: the help of, of new dimensions will be added our to
16: our bilateral cooperation, our bilateral cooperation also. For the other countries that have a desire, a desire to join BRICS, India will building
14: consensus for Kyo them be a
16: part of BRICS as part Friends, of the country. Friends. The
14: expansion
16: modernization
14: is a method. all institutions
16: in the hold themselves in to changing times is an initiative that can be an example for reform other global
14: institutions that were established
16: in the 20th century. Friends, just uh, as uh, my friend President Ramaphosa mentioned about uh, the moon mission of India, there were so many words here, of congratulations and since yesterday I have been here and, and received so many words uh, of congratulations from everybody and all across the world in
14: fact. This success, एक देश की सीमित सफलता के रूप में नहीं, is not लेकिन पूरी मानव जाति के महत्वपूर्ण
16: सफलता के रूप में स्वीकार किया जा रहा है, यह हम सभी लोगों के लिए अत्यंत गर्व का विषय है और भारत के विजेता पूरे विश्व की तरफ से अभिनंदन का अवसर। रात कल शाम, भारत के India's Chandrayaan
14: successfully
16: made a soft, soft landing, landing on the south pole of Yek the wind. As, as I said, they have a great achievement not only for India but also for the scientific community all over the world. And the area
14: the uh, target
16: which was identified as a target by India is in Kerala where no efforts have been made for lighting so far and the difficult terrain has हुआ been, हुआ been successful. In fact, the terrain
14: has been very
16: difficult and the pilot is able to lead us दिज्ञान to दिज्ञान the believe that this is a success of our scientists. On this very historic occasion, I have received India, as I Indian scientists have
14: received
16: and, community ko, uh, the entire scientific world of uh, the entire world uh, uh, has received congratulations messages and notes. I would like to to thank all, all very of very you, from say. myself behold, but behold, from behold, Polygon, behold. and also on behalf of the scientists, of my Indian scientists. Thank you very much.
9: It now gives thank you very much Prime Minister Modi. It now gives me the pleasure to ask President Xi Jinping, President of the People's Republic of China, to make his statement.
0: President
17: Ramaphosa, colleagues,
0: friends from the
17: press,
0: I am pleased to join you here. At the outset, I wish to thank President Ramaphosa and the South African government
17: for the thoughtful
0: arrangements they made for the BRICS Summit this year. BRICS countries are all countries with important
17: influence and
0: shoulder important responsibilities for world peace and development during the summit. We had in-depth exchanges
17: on the current
0: international situation and deep cooperation, reached broad
17: consensus,
0: adopted the declaration, and achieved fruitful outcomes.
17: Leaders of the five
0: countries unanimously agreed to invite Saudi Arabia, Egypt, the United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Argentina
17: Irland, Iran, Azerbaijan, and Ethiopia, to the
0: BRICS family as official members. China congratulates these countries and highly appreciates
17: the efforts made by our Chair South Africa and
0: President Ramaphosa.
17: This membership
0: expansion is historic. It shows the determination of British countries for unity and cooperation with the broader developing countries. It meets the expectation of the international community
17: and the common interests
0: of emerging market countries and developing countries. The extension is also a new starting point for BRICS
17: Cooperation. It will bring new
0: vigor to the BRICS Cooperation mechanism, further strengthen the force for world peace and development. I am confident as long as we work with a common purpose, there is a lot that BRICS Cooperation can achieve. And the future will be bright for BRICS countries. Let us work together to write a new
17: chapter of emerging market countries
0: and developing countries working together in unity for development. Thank you.
9: Thank you very much, uh, President Xi. Ordinarily, after in the acronym of BRICS, after Brazil, Russia, India, and China having spoken, it would now be the opportunity for the President of South Africa, President Ramaphosa, to speak, but he has already spoken. So that brings us to the end of our press statement. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your attendance. We have reached the end. Thank you.
1: Welcome back, and uh, that was a uh, briefing uh, by the BRICS plus uh, heads of state announcing uh, the admission of uh, six other countries, two from the African continent uh, three from West Asia, and one uh, from South America. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, Worldwide Radio Broadcast. I am your host, uh, abayomi Zigaway. And uh, the BRICS Plus uh, Summit 15 uh, uh, was quite significant uh, as far as international relations are concerned, uh, the expansion of a block of countries, which constitute, uh, at this point,
4: uh, perhaps over half of the population of the world, is quite phenomenal.
1: And, of course, uh, the Western capitalist countries are not a part of it, and, of course, uh, this is a development that we have been following uh, for the last 14 years, and uh, will continue to follow. Uh, in the weeks, months, and years uh, ahead. Uh, Of course, there's definitely a shifting balance of worldwide uh, global forces. And in regard to international diplomacy, uh, the countries of the global south, of course, are way ahead of those in uh, Western Europe and in North America. And uh, we're going to uh, right now move into another report uh, on uh, the BRICS 15 uh, summit uh, just recently concluded in the Republic of South Africa in Johannesburg. Let's listen in.
18: A new era for BRICS nations. The five members of the bloc have agreed to invite six new ones, and they're planning new currency arrangements aimed at reducing reliance on the U.S. dollar. So can BRICS really shake up the world's political and economic architecture? This is Inside Story. Hello there and welcome to the program. I'm Nick Clark. At a summit in Johannesburg, the BRICS Alliance has agreed to expand from five members to 11 by the start of next year. There might be more strength in numbers, but it's also part of a drive to reduce reliance on the US dollar for trade in a world more polarized than any time since the Cold War. So what will its expansion mean? Well, the BRICS Club is comprised of five major emerging economies. Those of China, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, and India. But it's looking to more than double its membership, with six nations invited to join in four months' time. They include Argentina, that has vast natural resources, but also economic turmoil. Then there is the Arab world's largest economy, Saudi Arabia, and Africa's second most populous country, Ethiopia. It's got close ties with Russia and China, but also the United States. The others are Iran, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. There was plenty more under discussion too. The new development bank based in Shanghai plans to lend using the currencies of BRICS members. More cooperation with African nations has also been promised. China will launch the initiative on supporting Africa's industrialization.
7: China will better harness its resources for cooperation with Africa, an initiative of businesses to support Africa in growing its manufacturing sector and realizing industrialization and economic diversification.
9: Our relationship with China will be one of promoting win-win outcomes based also on an important project that we have initiated, which is the Africa continental free trade area, which is going to be the engine of our economic development
18: well attending remotely was Russia's president Vladimir Putin he's wanted by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes in Ukraine speaking from Moscow he also promised economic support for Africa Right
10: now, we're concluding negotiations with various African countries on these issues. We're doing so despite the obstacles created by others, in particular, illegitimate sanctions imposed against our exports, which complicate insurance and settlement. Our African friends can rest assured that Russia will always remain a reliable food supply and continue to support the countries most in need.
18: Well, other leaders brought up issues ranging from the future of BRICS to pushing for solutions to equality and poverty. The expansion and
19: modernization of BRICS is a message that all the global institutions must be adapted to the changing times. This initiative can be an example for the reform of other 20th century global institutions.
10: The
20: energy transition cannot replicate the exploitation relationship of the colonial past. We need solutions that diversify and add value to the production of developing countries. The most evident signal that the planet is becoming a place of more inequality is the growth of hunger and poverty.
18: All right, let's bring in our guests now. From Berlin, we have Ben Aras, who's the founder and editor-in-chief of BNE Intelli News, a business media company focusing on emerging markets. From Johannesburg, Arina Murasan, a senior researcher at the Institute for Global Dialogue and South African a South African foreign policy specialist, and from Beijing, Aina Tanjin, a China affairs analyst and senior fellow at the Taihe Institute. A warm welcome to all of you. Uh, Ben, Aris, if I may start with you. So BRICS is here, bigger and better than before, you might say. A force for the good, you'd say? It's interesting, isn't
21: it? Uh, I think what's going on is fairly historic in so much as um, their view of the BRICS themselves is that you know, we've been emerging markets, we've been struggling uh, with poverty, with getting basic things in place. And this has all been happening in the last 30 years since the socialist experiment ended, failed with the collapse of the Soviet Union, and everybody's embraced um, markets. Uh, so the ideology, uh, we're now on the same page. Uh, and uh, you have three billion people in the, you know, the West, the capitalist system, and they've been joined by three billion uh, from the socialist system. And after 30 years, these emerging markets are beginning to emerge. um, And they're now reaching out and starting to say, look, we want our place at the top table. We want to have more of a stay in the way the world is run. We want our interests represented. um, Because they're underrepresented. They're underrepresented in things like the the U.S. Security Council um, and the various international bodies. And so what they're doing now is clubbing together in order to represent their interests and come as a body to what they see as the unipolar world, that's run by the West, specifically the US. And, and that creates various tensions, but there's also many divisions within the, the, the BRICs themselves. Some of them want to cooperate see as an economic club, some of them, like China and Russia specifically, want to challenge the West um, and be a lot more aggressive. And within the group itself, um, there's a lot of dissent about how that should be done.
18: Right, we'll come on to those divisions. In a moment or two, but first, Arena speaking from Johannesburg, for a country like South Africa, what's wrong with the way things work right now? What's wrong with the status quo and Western institutions like the IMF and the World Bank?
22: Look, when you think about why the BRICs came together, they say that their voices were not heard across, you know, the global economic platforms and the infrastructure already available. And for a country like South Africa that feels how currencies move, Immensely, this has immense potential to make a difference. But at the same time, while the BRICS are able to come together and strive for, you know, some kind of equitable world order, it's important to remember that while the BRICS want to to strive for a more equitable world order as a grouping, uh, they are first and foremost acting in their national interests and muddling through, you know, very uncertain global realities. Now. For South Africa, it's about how well it's able to domesticate this kind of BRICS agenda. What is it able to do with it in terms of taking these, these declarations, taking these bilateral relationships and making the best out of it. And from here, we've seen you know, two very key elements, you know, expansion. The last time BRICS expanded, it was in 2010 with South Africa being included and the alternative payment systems, as uh, of course gave marching orders to look at what can be done and you know how can you look at potentially moving towards using the dollar a lot less, but creating more infrastructure for uh, more local currencies.
18: Okay, again, we'll come on to that. Uh, Ina Tanjin in Beijing, so BRICS is not competing with anyone, said Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, but, but that's not the case. Is it? Isn't this all about putting BRICS Plus at the center of world affairs, creating a, you know, a new world economic order?
19: Well, not exactly. I mean, let's uh, go back a ways and talk about the uh, G7, G8, whatever it was called back then. Uh, those are supposed to be the leading nations. They were supposed to be guiding the, the world order and economically, et cetera. And then uh, they were not useful uh, during the economic crisis, the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009. So you have the emergence of the g20 uh, basically to do exactly what the g8 uh, g7 g eight at that time uh, could not do uh, and then flash forward uh, what you have is a group of middle powers who've been in essence denied access uh, to you know any kind of uh, kind of economic and political power that they feel that they uh, deserve uh, and there's a huge vacuum uh, the g20 g seven have not been able to uh, come forward. They were not very very helpful when it came to the COVID, and they're certainly not being very helpful when it comes to the economic problems that we have here. So, you know, the BRICS is a natural outcropping of countries um, that are united in the sense that they were all uh, victimized by uh, colonialization. Um, And if you start adding them up, it's interesting If you take the global south and then also um, the central Asia, you have about 160 countries. Well, what do they have? They have the majority of the world's resources, and uh, they have markets, and they have production. And the question then becomes, if they come together and they start doing what, uh, you know, had happened with OPEC, uh, they could, instead of uh, asking for, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars to, uh, deal with climate change and start demanding that they get fair price for their natural resources and for the production.
18: Interesting. Uh, ben, what do you make of that? And also this point, that, the fact that you, know, you have China and Russia at loggerheads, rising tensions with the United States and the West, and now BRICS is, is to add countries to its team that are openly antagonistic to the West, like Iran. This is just basically becoming an anti-Western bloc, isn't it?
21: Not yet. Not yet. Uh, I mean, that's the, the process they've just started on. Is they're trying to work out some modus operandi, because you know, China, Russia, they need India, Brazil, uh, South Africa, Lesotho, so, but also on board. And uh, Brazil and India have made it very clear um, that they don't want to have confrontations with the uh, with the West, and so much as they have relations, good relations, and investment, and what have you. And so they sort of find out within themselves um, how they're going to work this. And they were just the beginning of the process. I mean, we just had like a first serious discussion. But nevertheless, you know, people were, were lobbying. Uh, Russia was pushing for Iran to be included. Uh, Brazil was pushing for Argentina to be included. And um, they're going to uh, have this, this disparate group. But yes, I mean, it, it is, I think, in- inevitable that they're going to clash with the West to some extent. And as my colleague just pointed out, um, a lot of people said, look, this group's not going to work because they don't have enough in common, uh, you know, ideologically or system-wise. But it's not about what they have in common, it's about what they control. And between them, Central Asia, they control um, the, the addition of Saudi Arabia was particularly significant because now the, the, the BRICS Plus control 42% of the world's oil production, and they were already cooperating in a commercial sense with OPEC Plus, but now they're cooperating on a political level. And Russia itself controls you know, huge uh, amounts of um, raw materials, metals, minerals. China produce, uh, also controls huge amounts of process, Raw, uh, rare earths and things like the um, electric vehicle revolution can't happen if China starts to hold those things back. And so the potential for a really nasty clash is there. But I think everybody's sort of, you know, edging their way forward, trying to find out how it's going to work. And I think people like the states are going to be caught up short. They're going to have to make some sort of compromises. Um and we're in a new, like, undefined era as the emerging world emerges and starts to demand things, starts to ask for its voice to be held and heard. And either the West is going to take that into account, and this could go smoothly, or it's not, and then it could get ugly.
18: Right. As far as BRICS internally or BRICS plus internally is concerned, Arena, uh, how how will they avoid those clashes that Ben alludes to when you've got countries with very different economies and, and very different Foreign policy objectives. How can they uh, be cohesive in a way forward?
22: Look, many have come to say that this move to include these these countries at the moment actually dilutes the power of BRICS politically because it's difficult to reach the consensus. At the moment, it seems that most of the geographic activity is slow to encapsulate, you know, the full potential of South America and perhaps this could be the future strategy to look at another phase of expansion. But if you look at the clustering right now, Egypt, Ethiopia, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iran, this gives BRICS a kind of strategic Middle East North Africa look, while these countries come with significant challenges of their own, like we're saying. Egypt and Ethiopia are at an impasse regarding the Grand Ethiopia Renaissance Dam. China's done a lot of heavy uh, lifting in terms of Saudi Arabia and Iran to um, broker some kind of reconciliation. But this does not erase, you know, years of competing foreign policies between Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iran in the region. Even Argentina and Iranian relations have been immensely tense. But bringing in one or two without the other isolates another or the other potentially pushing them to take destabilizing decisions uh, for the region, if you so will. From one perspective, the BRICS could be moving to have a stronger economic impetus. But what if or does this show a strategic decision to shift attention away from the Indo-Pacific, for example, as an anticipated theater of play, at least for the next few years to come, and you saw you know, the proposition of Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand, where some have intimated that they needed more time to understand you know, the ASEAN implications and impacts, creating some kind of BRICS Indo-Pacific anchor. But shifting attention back to the Middle East from the Indo-Pacific, does this contain you know, the military-industrial complex in that region while tapping into critical minerals and creating new markets?
18: Aina, Ina, Ina Tangen, you mentioned climate change. This is a very good example of the potential for differences. On the face of it, we have different priorities with, say, uh, Brazil and with China. Brazil, we're under President Lula, very much uh, pro-environment and prioritizing environmental issues. China uh, still emitting on a huge scale. Is that going to be a stumbling block? Or conversely, might it make China more conducive to play ball not being hectored by the West?
19: Uh, I, I don't understand why you, you say that China is behind the wall. I mean, you know, th- there's a lot of things. For instance, uh, there's always this thing that uh, China's uh, building coal plants. Well, what they actually do is they'll close down, a, you know, 40, 30, uh, 30 or 40 coal plants, and they'll build one that is much more efficient and less polluting. Uh, they're doing this as a stopgap. They have plans, and as we know, uh, China generally tends to meet um, any kind of uh uh, deadlines that they uh, set for themselves. So I, I, I wouldn't be worried about that. Also, China is the leader in the uh, electric car industry, also photovoltaics and wind energy. So they're going along the same line. This idea that they're somehow at loggerheads, I, I think is wrong. All right. Let me um, put it in a different way. perhaps,
18: Can BRICS Plus be a force for good in the fight against climate change then?
19: Yeah, I can, but here's the problem. Um, the BRICS cannot uh, have everybody join. And the reason is, as uh, my colleague said, you dilute the decision-making power. But I do think as a middle power uh, representing these different regions, they can go back to uh, the G7 who have not come forward uh, with their promises. There's a promise of $100 billion a year and um, this was supposed to expand over uh, many years, only 10% of it has been delivered. And of that 10%, guess what? Most of the projects somehow benefit developed countries. And it's dubious as whether they're actually going to produce any kind of real environmental effect. So with a different entity representing these regions, they can go back and say, look, you, you folks have to uh, you know, pony up. Because right now, there's nobody told. Uh, You know the developed world's accountable. Think about it. You can't go to the United Nations. You can't go anywhere So right now the BRICS is the best chance of Getting some sort of real environmental action because they have leverage and this is the only thing that is respected despite all the high uh, sounding uh, Rhetoric about how we believe in the rule of law and international order the fact is uh, the West especially the US lately has been running roughshod over everybody starting wars breaking treaties Uh, You know, it it, it just goes on undermining international institutions like the WTO by refusing to appoint appellate judges. So I I do think that it can be a force for good. I don't see it as ideological. There's too many differences. But I do see it as a grouping. Remember, they do have something in common. Every single one of these nations uh, was victimized by colonialization at one point or another. Uh, So it's a a completely different grouping.
18: All right, that brings me on to my next point, because uh, there's, let me take you back to the 1950s. Uh, the original non-aligned movement was set up. Um, President Nasser of Egypt, uh, President Tito of then Yugoslavia, and President Nero of India. Uh, it was quite successful, wasn't it? But then it, it turned back to the West in the 1980s. Are, are there lessons to be learned from that, Ben?
21: I mean, it was the first attempt, but I mean, things have changed dramatically this time round. in so much as... Um and on the non the in those days, they were relatively weak and, you know, sort of empires were at the height of their power. And what's changed now is that um, the whole balance has shifted towards emerging markets. And it's a derogatory term in a way. Um, however, that's 40% of the world's population and on uh, 25% in terms of GDP nominal. But if you look at it at PPP, the parity purchasing power, then the emerging world is now richer than the developed world. And I think that's their point, is that, look, we're actually starting to be in charge. And I agree, I mean, think we all agree that there's something ideological uh, uniting these countries. I think the glue that's holding them together is a sort of enemy at the gate mentality of, like, we're being ignored by the rest of the world and we shouldn't be. And I think the way this is going to work is that they're going to be pragmatic. As emerging markets, they're dealing with lots of problems. Um, and it's not a question of values or ideology or, or, or philosophy. It's simply, you know, we've got things fixed. Um, they're pointing, for example, at the currency, at the dollar's use, the domination of the dollar in the world trading system, uh, which was a result of Bretton Woods. Um, and they're very unhappy with that because that gives the state enormous amounts of power. And Russia in particular is the case in point in so much as suddenly it had half its reserves confiscated. And it's been banned from the financial system, and, and that's caused a huge problem. And Iran the same problem, and um, China's looking at that, India's looking at that, and they're very worried. And this is where the enemy at the gate thing comes from. Russia's already in conflict with um, the states, as is Iran, but India, China, South Africa, the other emerging markets are like, well, we're gonna have a run-in with the states at some point, and then will they do the same to us? You know, confiscate our hard currency reserves, collapse our economies? I mean, Russia is strong enough or toxic, uh, enough, so that it can survive this, but smaller countries can't. And this is, I think, another reason why they're all running to the, the emerging world, is uh, the Global South is running to this, this BRIC organization, because they need some support. They need someone to stand up to the West and represent their interests. And as my colleague said, there's nowhere else to go. Um, the UN is dominated by the Security Council, that can't get you anywhere. Uh, there's no international court you can turn to, um, and so the BRICS is, is the alternative poll, and it's attracting a lot of interest because of that.
1: I... Welcome back. And uh, that was a discussion on uh, the BRICS uh, 15th Summit that was held in the Republic of South Africa. And uh, if you want to get more information on developments uh, surrounding BRICS, uh, just read the Pan-African Newswire, and that's at uh, Pan-African News blogspot.com that's pan african and uh, we're going to take a break and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment uh, on uh, black august and of course uh, we're here at the pan african journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, today is friday august 25th uh, 2023 and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown detroit Thank Big Mama Thornton uh, singing Bumblebee, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast for Friday, August 25th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Black August segment. This uh, features a lecture uh, by Professor David Blight of Yale University discussing the Emancipation Proclamation and of uh, the Civil War. And this is the Pan-African Journal Worldwide uh, Radio Broadcast.
20: The first formally recognized or organized black regiment in the Civil War was known as the first South Carolina Volunteers. It was organized entirely and exclusively among freed slaves along the Sea Islands of South Carolina. It had an amazing non-commissioned officer whose name was Prince Rivers, a man who'd been a slave yesterday, but a free man by 1862, and and whose white commanding officer, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, said in another land and another time he could command any army in the world. Thomas Wentworth Higginson was an abolitionist from Worcester, Massachusetts, who ended up the colonel and the commander of that regiment. Uh, nearly 1,000 freed slaves recruited among the roughly 35 to 40,000 former slaves along the Georgia and South Carolina Sea Islands. Higginson went on to write a great book about it called Army Life in a Black Regiment, And among the uh, remarkable descriptions he left in that classic is this description from Thanksgiving Day, 1862, so it's November 62. The preliminary Emancipation Proclamation is in place, but the final Emancipation Proclamation hasn't quite happened yet. It was actually the first formally, legally, federally recognized Thanksgiving Day, so decreed by Abraham Lincoln, And Higginson had his headquarters in an old plantation house. He looked out of broken windows at this abandoned plantation in the Sea Islands through what he described as the great avenues of great live oaks. And he observed that, quote, all this is the universal southern panorama, but five minutes walk beyond the hovels and the live oaks will bring one to something so unsouthern that the whole southern coast at this moment trembles at the suggestion of such a thing a camp of a regiment of freed slaves <laughs> almost 2 years later one of those freed slaves named George Hatton wrote a couple letters from the front George Hatton was a former slave. He had lived part of his life in Washington, D.C., part of his life in Virginia, North Carolina. He'd been around. He was at this point, by April of 1864, a non-commissioned sergeant in Company C, 1st Regiment, United States Colored Troops. They were encamped near New Bern, North Carolina. And he sat down to write a letter to reflect upon the circumstance that he found himself in. Hatton, his fellow soldiers and their families had lived generations as slaves. And this is what he wrote. He says, though the government openly declared that it did not want the Negroes in this conflict, I look around me and see hundreds of colored men armed and ready to defend the government at any moment. And such are my feelings, that I can only say, the fetters have fallen, our bondage is over. A month later, Hatton's regiment was encamped near Jamestown, Virginia, and he didn't miss the irony of being at Jamestown, founding site of Virginia. And into his lines came several black freed women who all declared they had recently been severely whipped by a master. Members of Hatton's company managed to capture that slave owner, a Mr. Clayton, the man who had allegedly administered the beatings on these women. The white Virginian was stripped to the waist. He was tied to a tree, and he was given 20 lashes by one of his own former slaves. A man named William Harris, who was now a member of the Union Army. In turn, each of the women that Clayton had beaten were given the whip and their chance to lay the lash on the slaveholder's back. The women were given leave, said Sergeant Hatton, his words, to remind him that they were no longer his but safely housed in Abraham's bosom and under the protection of the Star-Spangled Banner and guarded by their own patriotic, though once downtrodden, race. In Hatton's letter, he once again felt lost for words to describe the transformation he was witnessing. Oh, that I had the tongue to express my feelings, he wrote. While standing on the banks of the James River on the soil of old Virginia, the mother state of slavery, as a witness of such a sudden reverse, the day is clear, the fields of grain are beautiful, and the birds are singing sweet melodious songs, while poor Mr. Clayton is crying to his servants for mercy. That's a revolution described in the words of a former slave. Words that were trying to capture the transformations of history at the same time his actions were trying to transform history. Words. Now, we will forever debate in this society the meaning of the Emancipation Proclamation. Over and over and over again we debate, did it really free anybody? Why did it only free the slaves in the States in rebellion? Why was Lincoln so bloody legalistic in this document? Was Richard Hofstetter right when he said it had all the eloquence of a bill of lading, which means a grocery list? Why was it written like it was a legal brief in court? Here and there laced with Some remarkable phrases. Why was he so careful not to free the slaves in the border states that hadn't left the Union? And on and on. But I think we should make no mistake. The Emancipation Proclamation is a terribly important American document. Emancipation is not just the story of great documents, as I'm trying to argue. But this one's important. The second paragraph reads, and this is, by the way, Lincoln's own handwriting. This is a facsimile of the original. He wrote some three or four originals. That on the first day of January in this year of our Lord, 1,863 all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, God, is this legalistic, shall be then, this is not legalistic, then, thenceforward, and forever free. And the executive government of this United States, including the military and naval authorities thereof, the army and navy are now bound to do this, it says, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts they may make for their actual freedom. Actual freedom. Now, yeah, it was a limited document. It didn't free as many slaves as the Second Confiscation Act legally already set in motion. That's true. But this is the most important thing to remember about the Emancipation Proclamation. Most black folks didn't care about the details of it. What they cared about is that the United States government had acted and said they were going to be free. There were at least four immediate and visible effects of the proclamation once it went into effect on January 1st. Every forward step of the Union armies now would be, whether some of those officers liked it or not, a liberating step. Secondly, secondly, news of this proclamation whatever the details and the fine print would spread like wildflower uh, wildfire excuse me across the south and it would bring about there's no question it will bring about increased activity increased flight increased movement toward union lines by freed people where they can do it and there's all over all over the record we have testimony of confederate soldiers themselves, of Southerners, white Southerners themselves, saying they first heard about the Emancipation Proclamation from their slaves. Third, it committed the United States government in the eyes of the world, That's terribly important when we remember that Great Britain was on the verge of recognition of the Confederacy. More on that a bit later in the course of how that foreign relationship and the problem of Civil War diplomacy is being managed by the two governments, Union and Confederate. And fourth, on the second page of the Emancipation Proclamation, or is it the third, and another very legalistic paragraph, Lincoln formally authorizes once and for all, although it's already begun to happen, the recruitment of black men into the Union armies and navy. And it authorizes a formal process now to recruit black men to the Union uniform. And before the war will end, about 10% of all Union forces will be African Americans, approximately 180,000, 80% of whom were former slaves from the slave states. Now, in that fall of 1862, Frederick Douglass put down his cudgel that he'd been beating Lincoln with for a year in his editorials, and he beat him bitterly at times. At one point in in late 61, he called Abraham Lincoln the most powerful slave catcher in the world. That was Douglass' opinion of that denial of asylum policy, which said fugitive slaves' escape union lines had to be returned if their owners were loyal Douglas, like many others, saw the nonsense in that policy early on. Douglas finally put down the cudgel, and he said with lovely irony, it is really wonderful, said Frederick Douglass, how all efforts to evade, postpone, and prevent its coming have been mocked and defied by the stupendous sweep of events, its coming meaning black freedom. And I'd just say lastly, to add a fist to that, emancipation transformed the purpose of the war. Emancipation, more than anything else, will make the Civil War a war of conquest, a war of near totality on both sides. And it meant now, now that this was going to be a war of conquest on the South, social, and economic institutions, it meant it could probably only end in unconditional surrender. Now, it's a complicated story as to how this will be enforced, of course, and I strongly urge you to read certain of those Lincoln documents in the, <clears throat> in the Mike Johnson Reader, and more importantly to read at least that, that greatest hit selection I provided in the reading packet of the documents on emancipation which by the way come out of a book called free at last which is itself a five hundred page collection of the greatest hits of the documents of the american emancipation which are now published in five volumes all of which are in the library or in the national archives but one of those lincoln documents i don't want you to miss i said the other day was the james Conkling letter it comes in august of sixty three One of the reasons that letter is interesting is that it shows us that though Lincoln could be one crafty politician and whether emancipation will ever truly succeed in this war, of course, depends on the Union winning on the battlefield. It really depended on all those deaths at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg and so many other horrible places. And yes, it's true large, large numbers of those Union soldiers who died didn't necessarily believe they were fighting to free slaves, nor did they even want to. But sometimes history is ahead of anyone's basic human individual motives, isn't it? But in this Conkling letter, so-called, it's a public letter that Lincoln mastered this presidential art of the public letter more than any previous president. And it was his version of the news conference, which didn't happen in those days. It was his version of an exclusive interview with Anderson Cooper or whatever the hell it would be today. Um, He wrote letters aimed at certain newspapers, which would then be reprinted across the country. This was a letter to James Conkling, a congressman from Illinois, of his own party, who was opposing emancipation, who was, who was at least wary of it and worried about it. The great worry about the emancipation pro- policy, of course, was that white northerners would not accept it. That white northern soldiers would throw it on their arms and say, I ain't fighting to free the slaves. I'm fighting to preserve the Union. Thank you very much. Lincoln had that great fear himself. But God read that letter. It, it's one of Lincoln's It's Lincoln the Ironist. It's also Lincoln the Persuasive Lawyer. In the second page of it, he says to Conkling, he's really saying this to white northerners now, because this letter got published everywhere, you dislike the Emancipation Proclamation, he says, and perhaps would have it retracted. You say it is unconstitutional. I think differently. I think the Constitution invests its commander-in-chief with the law of war in time of war. The most that can be said, if so much, is that the slaves are property. Is there, has there ever been any question that by law of war, property both of enemies and friends may be taken when needed? So there's that argument. Whatever you think of the morality of this, folks... Life's the property of the enemy. I'm taking their assets. That's a legal argument. Then you go to the next page. He's also beginning to make there an argument. If you read that part of the letter carefully, it's an argument for total war, to unconditional surrender. And he's trying to condition public opinion for this. Then you go to the next page. You say you will not fight to free Negroes. Some of them seem willing to fight for you, but no matter. Fight you then exclusively to save the Union. I issued the proclamation on purpose to aid you in saving the Union. Whenever you shall have conquered all resistance to the Union, if I shall urge you to continue fighting, it will be an apt time then for you to declare you will not fight to free Negroes. All right. Crawl into your cul-de-sac and say you're only fighting to save the Union, but here's another way to save the Union. And then he goes on. I thought that in your struggle for the Union, to whatever extent the Negroes should cease helping the enemy, to that extent it weakened the enemy in his resistance to you. Do you think differently? I thought that whatever Negroes can be got to do as soldiers leaves just so much less for white soldiers to do in saving the Union. Almost as if he's appealing to Conkling's racial self-interest. Does it appear otherwise to you? And then Lincoln says, But Negroes, like other people, act upon motives. Why should they do anything for us? if we will do nothing for them. If they stake their lives for us, they must be prompted by the strongest motive, even the promise of freedom. And the promise being made must be kept. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of words, right? Words, 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 words. Yeah. But meanings are almost always somewhere, somehow, embedded in words. Now, as I said, now every forward step of the Union armies is going to be a liberating step. And I want to show a, just a quick map here to illustrate something. Um, I can zoom in on that. I hope you can see the colors here to some extent. The simple point of this map is this. It's a map that shows the conquest of the South by Union forces. It's the movement, generally speaking, of Union lines into the South in what becomes now, by 62, 63, and 64, a war of conquest west and east. But I want to especially stress that the most important factor in when and where a slave might attain his or her freedom, the first factor, had everything to do with where the armies went. It was proximity to the war that made emancipation possible in northern Virginia in 1862, Sea Islands of Georgia, South Carolina in 62, around the whole New Orleans region in 62, but not possible at all in southern Georgia until after the war was over. Not possible really at all in southern Alabama southern half of Alabama until the whole war was over. Not possible at all in parts of Mississippi until the whole war was over. Hence, that's why the large majority of American slaves were not actually within Union lines or technically free in any way until the war ended. I I make one other point about this. There's a a nice book by a historian named Stephen Ash. It's called When the Yankees Came, and it's, it's all about the, the process of union occupation of parts of the South. He goes in and studies towns in Tennessee and towns in northern Georgia and towns in northern Virginia and tries to understand, so what happened when an area of the South, an area of the Confederacy, came under union control? And he divides the South usefully here. And it's very useful in understanding how emancipation actually happened on the ground as a human, sometimes brutal, ugly, chaotic, painful process. He divides the South into what he calls one, uh, three regions. One, the Confederate frontier. The second he calls no-man's land. And the third he calls garrisoned towns. Now that's pretty easy to understand if you think of, uh, this, just take Tennessee up there in the middle. Nashville became, by 1862, Nashville became a garrison, it was the capital of Tennessee. It became a garrisoned Union town. That is, it's occupied. Its resources, its railroads, its, it's everything were taken over by the Union forces. And then there's the so-called no man's land. The region, say, between uh, Nashville and where the Confederate forces were. The land between the armies, which, of course, fluctuated a great deal back and forth. And then lastly, he calls it the Confederate frontier, or at times he'll call it the Confederate hinterland. That is the land behind the line that was never taken by Union forces. The land land behind the lines where Confederate resources, relatively speaking, remained intact. They're still producing cotton crops in the summer of 64, in the fall of 64, and they're still planting in the whole southern half of Georgia and the whole southern half of Alabama, by and large, right on into 1865. But where you happen to be geographically, was the first important factor where and how emancipation might occur in proximity particularly to the armies. Now, a second factor that would determine when and if slaves would be free was the character of the slave society in any given region. Were they in a densely populated slave region like the Sea Islands, parts of the Cotton Belt, or were they in sparsely Populated areas, and it—I mean, again, it, it had to do with geography. Were you in the Lower Mississippi Valley? Huge concentrations of slaves. When Grant's forces moved down the Mississippi and eventually take Vicksburg by July 1863, this entire region. In fact, it is in the Lower Mississippi Valley. This is why some people argue that the war, the Civil War, was really won and lost in the West. And I'll I'll engage that argument after the break when we talk about Union victory and Confederate defeat and the various debates among historians trying to explain this. A lot of people have argued that the war is won and lost in the West because of the the great significance of the Mississippi Valley, which had become the great cotton kingdom of the world. And when, when Union forces truly conquered the Mississippi River by the summer of 1863, there are thousands of slaves coming into Union lines. The reason that Grant and Sherman and other officers in the West began to create these things called contraband camps for freed slaves is because they didn't know what what to do with them. And there are these amazing dispatches written by Grant uh, to, to the War Department saying, what am I going to do with all these people? How do I feed them? Where do I put them? What is their status? What are they legally? And eventually, that's why you get the largest contraband camps anywhere. The largest ones were not in Virginia, although there was a huge one around Washington, D.C. The largest of them were in northern Mississippi at a place called Corinth. You can see it on the map right here. There was a huge contraband camp at Memphis. There was eventually one in Cairo, Illinois, all up and down this region. This is where conquest really happened first and the, the true disruption of southern society and the beginnings of the destruction of plantations. It will lead even uh, to the beginnings, of, it's going it's to take another year for it to happen along the east coast, but it begins in 63, even in 62, but especially 63, where many plantation owners in Louisiana and Mississippi started refugeeing their slaves. They would flee their plantations in the face of the Yankee armies, often going west toward Texas, sometimes just further inland, or wherever they could go and they would try to take their slaves with them it was called refugeeing them and often what that I means I'll, I'll cite some examples of that after the break there's a famous diary memoir by a southern woman kate stone who kept a diary of her plantation called brokenburn at any rate uh, she left with some hundred and some slaves uh, to try to get out of Louisiana over into Texas, but by the time she got there, half of them were gone. And she kept wondering why. Gee, why would they leave? It happened to their loyalty. Then thirdly, uh, the third factor that would determine when and how and if a slave became free was indeed um, what Policy was actually being enforced at any given time by those Union troops, or for that matter, by the Confederate troops, in terms of freeing slaves or not freeing slaves, taking them into their lines or not taking them into their lines, and establishing some kind of legal status. And then the fourth factor, of course, and this one you can't measure. You can know it when you read it and you see it and you hear it. And there's so many wonderful documents that demonstrate it. The fourth factor in when and how American slaves became free was their own ingenuity, their own initiative, their own cunning, their own bravery, their own willingness to risk everything to try to get to something called freedom. And not knowing what that freedom would be when they got there. Would they be employed? Would they have shelter? Are they going to be able to feed their children? Could they get their wives and husbands out with them? What about women with three children? Where would they go? What would their status be? Would they actually have any rights? We learned so much about this, and please, in the the, uh, reading packet, have a close look. I I included uh, some of those... uh, uh, Documents from the contraband camps where these superintendents of the, uh, of the contraband camps were all asked a series of questions. They were asked things about the motives of the slaves that escaped into their camps. They were asked to describe why had these people come. They were asked to describe their physical conditions. They were asked to describe uh, what they thought, what they felt, what they said. And all these superintendents of all these contraband camps are just stunned at the, at the way that black folk keep coming in spite of the hardships, half-clothed, half-fed, if that. And they're stunned at the religiosity of escaped slaves. These superintendents write back and they say, these people sing and they worship all night long. Strange. But almost to a man, these superintendents of contraband camps, when asked what were the motives, They simply fall back on the most basic of things. They say things like, um, they wanted their freedom. Now, emancipation also would depend here and there on a whole lot of other factors, but again, they come under these categories I've already given you, the close proximity to the war. Now, for example, when the war moved into Georgia, in 63 and 64, when Sherman invaded northern Georgia. And the war really went to the deep hinterland, the heart of the southeast. Confederates were already, and they were already doing this in Virginia, they were, they were beginning to do it out in the west, they surely did it in the, in the city of Mobile and other Confederate-held cities. Confederates had begun to employ or impress their slaves into service, thousands of them. About 3,000 slaves were put to work in Mobile, Alabama, building its fortifications. Slaves, hundreds upon hundreds of slaves were put to work building the fortifications of Richmond. An estimated 5,000 slaves were put to work building the fortifications all around Atlanta by late 63 to try to stop Sherman's advance. Very often they were hired out That is, they were supposed to be paid, or their owners were supposed to be paid for their service. They were used as teamsters and nurses and cooks and boatmen and blacksmiths and laundresses and so on and so forth. If you saw a Confederate army from 1862 to 64, you'd see hundreds of black people. Well, and as those armies moved, sometimes those slaves had opportunities to flee. In the wake of battles, On any scale, some slaves would always flee. They were often uh, used as the burial crews on both sides. They were also hired out, and this was really significant in Virginia, to the ironworks in Richmond. The Tredegar Ironworks at one point employed almost 4,000 slaves who tended to be hired out from the western parts of Massachusetts and the northern parts of North Carolina. That movement of people, on this sca- movement of slaves, on this scale had never happened in the South. And in the midst of that movement, Linda Morgan wrote a fine book on emancipation in Virginia, and he, she showed this for the first time, that all this movement of, of hired-out slaves to Richmond and other small ironworks, by the way, over in the Shenandoah Valley, meant... A certain percentage of them began to flee and escape further north. They worked on railroad crews. Uh, It was estimated that in in northern Georgia, during Sherman's campaign against Atlanta, that about 40% of all the women working as nurses in Confederate hospitals all over the state were slave women. It means they've been taken off their plantations, their farms, or out of their domestic situations, wherever they were, and put to work in the hospitals. So, the point is, movement of the armies meant movement of slaves as well. And that moment of freedom, that moment of escape, that opportunity might come when you would least expect it. And that, that American slave had to make a choice every time do I go and risk everything or do I not? Let me tell you one little story amidst that. It's the other half of this book I just did. It's a young slave named Wallace Turnage. He was born in a little to- on a little tobacco farm in North Carolina in 1846, Greene County, North Carolina, <coughs> sold by his indebted owner to a Richmond, Virginia slave trader named Hector Davis, who was one of the largest slave traders in the United States and kept enormous records, spent about six months in 1860 working in the the three-story slave jail auction house in Richmond. His job every day was preparing the slaves in what was called the dressing room to take them out to the auction floor. And one day he simply told, boy, you're in the auction. And he was sold to an Alabama cotton planter named James Chalmers. 72 hours later by train, he found himself on a huge cotton operation near Pickensville, Alabama, which is uh, right about there, right on the Mississippi border. Plantation with about 85 slaves. And the narrative he left us, which was discovered and lopped into my lap a few years ago, the extraordinary narrative he left is the story largely of his five attempts to escape in the midst of the war from the age of 14 to 17. He was one passionate, half crazy one might say, no doubt traumatized teenage slave who just couldn't be controlled. He ran away four times into Mississippi, the second two of which certainly at least, he was always trying to get up to northern Mississippi to get to the Union Armies, which he knew had controlled the whole northern tier of Mississippi by late spring, 1862. In fact, three of his escapes over there were really... Tr- he would always go up the Mobile and Ohio Railway line. At one time he was at large for four and a half months, hiding in other slave cabins and hiding in woods and forests and gullies and wherever he could hide, and he was always captured. He was trying to actually get to Corinth, and the big contraband camp in Corinth. And he almost made it on his fourth try. He kept being captured by slave patrols, Confederate patrols, and so on. His master would always come after him because he was so valuable. He'd been sold, by the way, for $950 the first time out of North Carolina. He was sold for $1,000 to old Chalmers in Richmond. And Chalmers now got fed up in early sixty-three of constantly trying to retrieve this kid and he took him down to Mobile, Alabama and sold him at the slave jail in Mobile in the spring of 1863 for $2,000. That's about the price today of a good Mercedes-Benz. Well, as opposed to a bad Mercedes-Benz, I'm not sure what that would be. Uh, And Wallace's fifth and final escape attempt, the one that succeeded came after a vicious beating. He'd been beaten many more times than he could count. He'd been put in neck braces and leg chains and ankle chains and wrist chains and every kind of... He'd experienced about every kind of brutality slavery could wreck upon a teenage kid. And one day he crashed his master's carriage and the master got so angry that he took him to the slave jail, hired the jailer to give him 30 lashes with the ugliest whip they had, this contraption they had that would make you bleed on every lash. At the end of it, he's standing there naked, bleeding. His master says, go home. Instead of going home, he put his clothes back on and he walked right through the Confederate Army, a garrison of 10,000 troops, where he was no doubt simply mistaken for yet another black camp hand. And at dusk, he just crossed through the Confederate camp and he walked out of Mobile, And his final escape is a three-week trek, which he narrates uh, uh, in in remarkable ways. A three-week trek down the western shore of Mobile Bay for 25 miles through a snake and alligator-infested swamp, now known as the Fowl River Estuary. I've been there. I've seen the alligators and the snakes from a large ferry boat. And he describes one day praying especially hard when he got out to the tip of Mobile Bay and the tide brought in an old rickety rowboat. He tipped over the rowboat, took a plank of wood, and he just started rowing out into the ocean. And in quite dramatic form, which is no doubt a little embellished, he describes how a wave is about to swamp his little boat, and he hears oars. And the oars were a Union gunboat with eight sailors, They said jump in, he jumped in, and he said as he sat down in their boat, he said the Yankee sailors were struck with silence as they looked at him. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't doubt it. They probably were struck with silence, wondering who he was and how he got there. They took him to a sand island fort and clothed him and fed him, the first kind act by a white person the 17-year-old turnage had ever experienced. And the next day they took him to Fort Gaines on Dauphin Island, which is the big, beautiful sandbar island out at the mouth of Mobile Bay. And he was brought before the Union commander of all forces in in the area, uh, Gordon Granger, who interrogated him, probably because they wanted intelligence about Mobile. And Granger gave him two choices. He could either... Join a black regiment that they were forming at that very time in the Gulf region. Or he could become a servant to a white officer. And Wallace chose the latter. Didn't tell us why, but probably because he'd had enough suffering. He'd seen enough of uh, his own war with the Confederates. And he served out the war for another year as the mess cook for a captain from a Maryland regiment whose name was Junius Turner. And Wallace was with that regiment in Baltimore, Maryland in August of 1865 when it was mustered out. He lived three years in Baltimore and then moved to New York City where he lived the rest of his life until 1916. But by 1870, I found him in a census manuscript living on the 300 block of Thompson Street in what you and I call Greenwich Village. He got his mother, his four siblings, somehow out of North Carolina, and they were all living in a tenement house, surviving as part of the first generation of a black working class, former slaves in a northern city. He lived till 1916. He's buried in Cypress Hill Cemetery in Brooklyn, New York. The point of all of that is that these slaves escaping were real people with real names, real families, real hopes and desires. And those who survived, some of those who survived, told us what it meant. Now, um, the war, of course, raged on. And at the end of the day, that's a photograph, by the way, taken in 1862, I believe, um, in Virginia. The photographer simply called it a group of contrabands. The war raged on, and of course, in the spring of 1863, The Union armies will invade Virginia again. I'm going to come back to lots of this after the break when we get back to the military history and try to explain how the Union side won this war. They'll fight a horrible battle at a place called Chancellorsville near Fredericksburg in May of 1863, which will be another smashing victory by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson over a Union army commanded by Joseph Hooker. It will give Lee his occasion for his second invasion of the North, the riskiest of all, which will lead him up through northern Virginia, across into Maryland, and eventually all the way into Pennsylvania and will lead to the fateful battle at Gettysburg, first three days of July 1863, arguably the most important military turning point of the war. But it is in those same first six and seven months of 1863 that this war has now been transformed into a war of unconditional surrender, a war of all-out attempt, at least, all-out mobilization at home and conquest in the South. It is during this period that black soldiers are being recruited. The 54th Massachusetts, the famous regiment from Massachusetts by which the movie Glory was made, was recruited that winter and spring, of course, and marched off to South Carolina to its fate um, in May of 1863. They will reach their fate at Fort Wagner the, within a, a week of the Battle of Gettysburg back up north. But just as a way to take this out today, go back with me to July 1st, uh, excuse me, January 1st. 1863, the day the Emancipation Proclamation actually went into place, I said at the outset that for most black folk, they didn't really care about what actually the details or the words of the document were. The point was that now somehow the United States government was sanctioning emancipation. And go back with me to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. This is Higginson's description of Emancipation Day on Hilton Head Island in South Carolina, near Beaufort, North Car- uh, Beaufort, South Carolina. He was given orders to read the Emancipation Proclamation to the people, to the, to the freedmen. And this, by the way, became a policy throughout the Union Army. Thousands of copies of the Emancipation Proclamation were given to Union officers who were ordered to spread it around the South. Higginson not only spread it, he held a a ceremony. They built a little stage. And this is his description of what happened. He's describing the scene. Welcome back.
1: And uh, that was a lecture by historian David Blight on the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, the Civil War in the United States. That's going to conclude our program uh, for uh, today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide uh, radio broadcast. And, of course, uh, we are here every week, and uh, we are here uh, bringing you some of the most updated and advanced information related to the African world and the international community in general. If you'd like to have access to this program, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin, Detroit's own, uh, whose uh, transition uh, we just commemorated uh, last week. This is taken uh, from the album, uh, Live in Paris, from 1968. This is Abayomi Azikaway signing off, and have a beautiful week.
12: First time première fois en France, Léon Arisa Franklin.
23: Me, do you like the blue?
4: Do you really like the
23: blue? Good. Mmm.